music team. If uh, if we desire to, to hear and see anything week in, week out, it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so uh, it's our practice here at Grace Fellowship, rather than to, or at least it's our regular practice, rather than to preach thematically or topically, but we actually preach our way through a book, and we're actually going uh, through the book of Luke, looking at his life, looking at Jesus' life, rather. Um, and I actually want to begin today's sermon by applying something from last week's sermon. So if you weren't here for that, here's basically the gist of it, that Jesus tells a story about uh, a manager uh, whose boss fires him. He fires him for, for wasting his money. Uh, and so uh, this manager, since he knows that his time is short, he starts scheming, starts making plans, uh, gets shrewd so that he can uh, provide a way for himself to survive, to live. And that's what Jesus wants his followers to do, uh, to to scheme, not to, not to defraud people, but to be crafty in the way that they use wealth for God's purposes. Uh, I want to illustrate this. Well, so, so, what, so what Jesus is saying is basically, look at what God has given you, ask Him what He wants you to do with it, uh, and then just start dreaming and scheming uh, about how you can use what you have. And as an example, um, you may not be familiar with the store of, uh, with the story of 826 Valencia. Uh, so back in 2002, and I, I got this story from a pastor named Joel Brooks. Uh, back in 2002, uh, there were a couple of people who wanted to start tutoring um, kids, particularly in writing. And so uh, they, they lived in San Francisco, and they had this dream. Uh, and they just so happened to have a place, 826 Valencia Street. And the problem was that 826 Valencia Street was zoned for retail. So they had a dream and they had a place, but on the face of it, those two things did not match. And so they started scheming. They, they, they started trying to figure out how they could make this happen. And what they decided to do was to start a pirate supply company. That's right. A pirate supply company where you could order your hats, your hooks, your parrots, your maps, basically anything and everything pirate you could order from this store. Uh, and it was a huge hit, and basically the store was a front for the writing lab in the back. And so uh, these people got crafty, they got shrewd, and uh, that creativity aimed in the right direction has led to over 15,000 volunteers tutoring over 9,000 students. That's what, uh, that's, that's an example of what shrewdness, uh, being wise in the way that we use what we have can lead to. So I wanted you to think, what, what about us? How do we begin to think in crafty ways about what God has given us and how we might use it for His purposes, for His glory. And the reason I wanted to start there is because Jesus goes on to tell us a story uh, about someone 
who does not do that. He gives us a negative example about someone who hoards their wealth, uh, and it leads to tragic consequences. And so we are going to be in Luke chapter 16. We're going to start reading in verse 19. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the chair, it's on page 876. Jesus says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, Uh, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help in understanding and applying it to our lives. Let's pray. Father, the the subject of our our wealth, our material possessions, however much or however little we have, is very touchy. God, I pray that you would... Help us to understand why that's so. And Lord, that guilt wouldn't be the only motivator, nor would it be the primary motivator, but Lord, that in this we would see your goodness. In this passage, we would see your goodness to us. That you would transform the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see our stuff, our wealth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, many of you probably know the story of the unsinkable ship that set sail from Southampton, England on its way ultimately to New York in the April of 1912. You know that story maybe because Leonardo DiCaprio made that story famous. 
Um, but that ship's name is the HMS Titanic. And the Titanic was an engineering marvel. For its day, it was a very big ship. It was also a very fast ship. And it was an unsinkable ship. By virtue of these watertight compartments present in the hull of the ship. And so, uh, as the, as this ship, as the Titanic uh, made its way to New York, as it steamed at high speed across the North Atlantic, uh, the crew began to receive reports of icebergs in the area. But those reports were not passed on to the bridge or to the captain. In fact, the owner of the White Star Line, which is the, the company that made the Titanic and ran the Titanic, the owner was on board the ship and he wanted it to get there even faster than it already was. And so they began to pick up steam as they moved through Iceberg-riddled waters. And then just before midnight, as you probably know, the Titanic struck an iceberg, not head-on, but on her starboard side, and ice tore through six of the watertight compartments. And the unsinkable ship began to sink. Now, adding to that great tragedy is the fact that there are not enough lifeboats on board the ship. Because who needs lifeboats on an unsinkable ship? Nor were any of the passengers prepared. There were no, uh, there were no instructions. There were no drills given on what you were to do in case something bad happened. Because what can happen on an unsinkable ship? And so there was panic on the deck as the very, as, as too many people tried to squeeze on to too few lifeboats. And so by 2.20 a.m., the Titanic breaks in half and begins sinking to the bottom of the sea floor. And of the 2,206 people on board, only 705 are able to escape and be rescued. Now, why do I tell you that story, the makers of the Titanic and her crew were so confident. They were so secure in what they had or what they thought they had that they were blind to the real danger all around them. And Jesus is telling us a very similar tragic tale. This rich man lavishly indulges himself. He is confident and secure in what he has. And what that causes him to do is to be blind to the needs around him. In fact, to be blind to the needs of the poor man laid at the end of his driveway. But the need that he really misses is his own. He's blind to the poverty of his own soul. So, Jesus' point is not that rich people are evil. Nor is his point that poor people are inherently righteous. It's not a story about class warfare. It's a story about the wrong use of wealth, material goods, which can lead to eternal disaster. 
And it can lead to disaster because our wealth, particularly the self-indulgent pursuit of wealth, blinds us to true need. And it does that in two ways. Uh, it blinds us, one, to the needs of others. If, we're gonna, if we self-indulgently pursue wealth, uh, it can cause us to be blind or to ignore the needs of others around us. But even more tragically, it blinds us to our own. It can blind us to our own true need. So uh, let's, uh, let's, look at these, uh, let's look at these characters. Um, we'll talk about being blind to the needs of others first. Uh, let's look at the picture of these, these two men. First we meet the rich man. He's kind of the, the main character of the story. He's the one that we hear from. Uh, and we're told that he wears the finest clothes. He has purple, which would have been very expensive to wear. Purple and fine linen. So no, no department store clothing here. This guy didn't even, this guy, this, this guy didn't even shop. He certainly didn't shop at Walmart. He didn't even shop at Target. Joseph A. Bank uh, would not have been good enough for this guy. He probably had his own tailor. All right, uh, and so uh, he wears the finest clothes, and he uh, feasts sumptuously every day. Even that word "sumptuously" just sounds rich and extravagant, doesn't it? This guy celebrates every day, right? You get the impression uh, something like uh, the Great Gatsby of a guy who who throws parties every night, um, and so uh, he has nothing. Nothing to lack and, and plenty to use up. And at his doorstep, as it were, is a man named Lazarus. And notice, uh, notice that Lazarus is laid at his doorstep. He doesn't even bring himself to the doorstep. So either Lazarus is, is either disabled or so malnourished that he cannot even carry himself there. He is, some, he is laid there by someone else. And he, he's described as poor, uh, but he's also described as covered in sores. So not only is this man poor, but he's also quite disgusting to look at. Uh, his condition would have been revolting to anyone walking by. And it says that he longs to be fed with the leftovers, with whatever would fall from the table. He hoped against hope that maybe, just maybe, he could get some scrap from this rich man's table. But what he, what he gets instead are wild dogs coming to lick the pus that oozes out of his sores. Uh, and so the, the condition of these two men could not be more opposed the rich man is well-dressed, he's well-fed, plenty of indulgent excess. Lazarus cannot even move his body in a meaningful way. He, he can't even shoo away these street dogs. These aren't, these aren't household pets we're talking about. These are wild dogs that would have roamed the streets and every, every lick would have made Lazarus ceremonially unclean. Uh, and so, Lazarus cannot, cannot move. He is disgusting in every sense of the word. Uh, so while the feast carries on inside, Lazarus is left alone outside with the dogs. And it will become clear later that 
the rich man sees Lazarus. This is not a problem of ignorance. The rich man knows that he's there because later on in the story, we're going to see that uh, the rich man knows Lazarus's name. He's well aware of who he is. And we're assuming well aware of where he is. He knows he's there. He knows his name, but he does nothing. And we're not talking about daily necessities. We're not talking about the basics of food and clothing. This man's lifestyle is luxurious. But even a luxurious lifestyle is not his primary problem. His primary problem is his pursuit of wealth that blinds him to the needs of his neighbor. It's interesting, uh, I was talking with someone about this before church, but... Uh, The American economy since World War II has been nothing short of explosive. Now, really it began with the Industrial Revolution, but since the end of World War II, as the, the greatest generation came out of the Great Depression, the rise and spread of wealth in America is unprecedented in human history. Right, you... We today have access. I mean, the, the fact that I got up this morning and hot water readily came out of the pipes that flow through my home. That a, uh, that a, that a small computer that rivals what took the spaceship to the moon and is connected to this thing we call an, the internet woke me from sleep. Right? All of, all of that. Are, are luxuries that previous generations in human history, like kings and queens in previous empires, would drop their jaws at what is available to the normal household in American life. So, um, so the economy since World War II has really exploded. But it's also given rise to something else, what we would call consumer culture. That as wealth began to spread out through the country, and this is and, and this is so normal for us that we don't even know that it only has happened within the past hundred years. But the way that we see our stuff has changed in less than a hundred years. That we now begin to see ourselves primarily not as producers or earners, but as consumers. That our job is to consume stuff. Our job is to use things. And so that, I mean, that's even, that's even the main message, right? That, that advertising and marketing is built on. That the more you have or the newer you have, the better you are, right? Our acquisition of stuff came, became tied to our well-being. Can you, you see, the, see the connections there? Things like, uh, even, even things like two weeks vacation, would have been unheard of before World War II and the Great Depression, right? The idea of retirement has only come about in the past uh, in the past hundred years. Uh, so all of that, all of that is new. Um, and I would illustrate it this way: just kind of how we how we see ourselves. When was the last time you heard an advertisement, right? That said, you know, where where Verizon said, "Hey." You need to upgrade to the newest iPhone so that you can love your neighbor better. Right? We don't, that's not typically, that's not the advertising message we hear, right? 
Uh, we need to hear, we need to upgrade to the newest iPhone so we can take better pictures. Really, I think that was the only reason to upgrade to the new iPhone was to take better pictures, right? Uh, even that reality right there, a camera is now on your phone. You don't have to own a camera anymore, you just own a phone. Uh, I was listening to, uh, to sports talk radio station the other day and they were talking about an app, a service, where now when you head to the game day destination of your choice, be that Tuscaloosa or Auburn or probably just those two, um, that there's an, you now have an app where you can save a parking space in someone else's yard. That they can put parking spaces on. Like you can go ahead and have a parking space reserved for you by the time you get there. Now, the the creativity behind that, the entrepreneurship behind that, we want to applaud, right? That's that craftiness we were talking about. That's that's called good business, right? They came up with, they saw a need, I use that term loosely, uh, and developed a service to meet that need. You can now... Reserve your spot before you ever leave home. And some of you right now are like, what is the name of that app? I want to download that. All right. But so it's not so much that that I would critique, but it was the way that the newscaster was talking about it. He said, man, this has been such a lifesaver for me. It was such a hassle before to to get to Tuscaloosa, to try to find a place to park that didn't break the bank. I mean, is there anything worse Yeah, I can think of a few things. The not having a parking spot ready for me when I show up. Right? But that's, that's where we are. Uh, the wealthier we have become, the more we come to believe that these things are necessities. That what once were conveniences are now necessities. And it's interesting that, that as we have gotten wealthier, the percentage of our giving has remained about the same. That Americans only give, Americans give about two to three percent of their income on average. Two to three percent of their income on average. Um, in fact, the wealthier we become, the less we give. So while the, the dollar amount given may go up, the actual percentage goes down. So, um, for instance, just to use an example, Donald Trump can give more in one time in a one time gift Donald Trump is able to give more than I would ever be able to give in my entire life but those who make under 100,000 tend to give more of their wealth than those who make more than 100,000 as a percentage interesting that the wealthier we become the less we give why is that why is that is it Possible because the more we have, the more we think we need, the more we want to keep, more and more things seem like necessities, and so we give away less and less. Wealth can blind us. If we pursue wealth for its own sake, it can blind us to the needs of those around us. And so maybe the first question we ought to ask is, do I see people? Do I really see them? Do I see people as people? Or do I see them as tools that can help me get what I want? Do I see them as servants who can give me what I ask for? Do I see them as obstacles? And our response to God's grace ought to be generosity towards others. But 
as guilt-inducing as that is, the, uh, the greatest need in the story is actually not Lazarus's. Lazarus's need, the poor man's need, is not the greatest in the story. It's actually the rich man. The rich man is the one who finds himself in the greatest condition of poverty. The greatest sadness of wealth is not that it blinds us to the needs of others, though that is sad, but that it can blind us to our own true spiritual poverty, which is exactly what happens here. Both of these men die, and we learn that wealth now does not guarantee wealth later. A dramatic reversal happens. Uh, Lazarus dies and is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Uh, This is paradise. This is a place of rest and peace and comfort. And conversely, the rich man, on the other hand, dies and is buried. Notice he gets no angelic escort. We don't actually even get his name. Lazarus has a name, but this man does not. And this man is in hell, in, in early, what we call hell. He is in torment in Hades, this place of mental and physical torment. And as he's in torment, he, look, he lifts up his eyes and he sees Lazarus. And now we know that he knows Lazarus. He sees the man who used to beg at his driveway, now nestled with Abraham in paradise. And so he calls out for relief. He calls Abraham father. This is a a Jewish man. He says, Father Abraham. We should point out that his ethnicity, his Jewishness, buys him nothing. Father Abraham, send Lazarus. Have him go dip the tip of his finger in some water so that he can cool my tongue. I think it's maybe a further sign of this man's blindness that even still, he's having other people do his bidding. He's trying to have Lazarus go work for him. Go bring him some water to cool him off. Go warn his brothers. But Abraham says, Child, you've already received your good things. And this is the saddest part. This man has gotten all the good he is ever going to get. He has gotten all of the good he is ever going to get. All of the things that he accumulated, all of the treasure, all of the fine clothes, all of the delicious food, it's done. All of the temporary pleasure has been sought. And he sought it at the cost of his own life. Jesus says in Mark eight thirty six, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And that's exactly what's happened here. This man has gained the whole world, but he has forfeited his soul. Because there is a greater hazard than poverty. There is greater pain than hunger. And now the rich man knows that. And on the flip side, there is a greater comfort than riches. I mean, is that not why we pursue the wealth that we pursue? So that we would, we would be comfortable? 
So that we wouldn't, look, the, the, the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk about poverty in a good way. Being poor, uh, according to the scriptures, uh, is, is not a blessed condition in the purest sense of the word. Uh, it leaves you open to danger. It leaves you open to abuse. It leaves you open, uh, to so many things. So, Jesus again is not saying that everybody should sell everything they have and take a vow of poverty. That's not the point. The point is, how do we view wealth, whether we have it or not? How do we use wealth, whether we have it or not? There is a greater comfort than what riches can provide. There's a greater joy than having everything you want. And that's really what Jesus is going after here. And so uh, Abraham denies Lazarus' request. He says, hey, uh, you've already had your good things, and Lazarus has had his bad things, and now the tables are turned. Plus, there's a chasm between us. There's no way that Lazarus can come to you. Your position is fixed, and our position is fixed. And so the, the time for that is done. And so then the, the rich man says, well, then go, send, send him to go warn my brothers. Tell them so that, so that they know what kind of life, that the kind of life they're living would bring them to this place of torment. And again, Abraham denies the request. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have God's word God's word given through Moses and the prophets is clear. It's very clear about how the rich are to use their wealth. It's very clear about how the poor are to be cared for. And so the rich man says, well, yeah, but, sure they have the word, but, but maybe they'll listen if someone comes back from the dead. You familiar with the, uh, with the story of A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens? Actually, the first time I became aware of that story was through Disney the Disney version of A Christmas Carol we would watch every Christmas. Um, but in that story, right, there's Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, the rich man who hoards his wealth, and even when uh, some, some charitable workers on the street ask him to give, uh, to give some of his wealth away uh, to, the, to the people who are starving, he says, aren't there prisons and poorhouses? Why don't they go there? There's food there. And the guy says... Well, these people would rather die than go to prison. And he says, well, then let them die. We'll cut off, we'll cut off the surplus mouths to feed. That's Scrooge's heart. And so he gets a visit. He gets a visit from an old business partner named Jacob Marley. And Marley is uh, covered in chains. He comes and wakes up Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, to convince him that uh, his current course is going to end in train wreck. And uh, Marley is covered in chains and locks. And so uh, Scrooge says this, he, you, are, you are chained, you are fettered, Scrooge says, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link. And yard by yard, I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will, I wore it. Abraham says, 
if they are deaf to the word, then not even someone coming back from the dead will wake them up. Even the resurrection won't wake them up. If your heart is unwilling to hear God's demands, then signs and wonders won't really help. God's word is sufficient and it is clear. But we must be willing to hear it. And so the very uncomfortable question that we have to ask, even as we move, uh, as we move into this season, right? Black Friday is Friday. The biggest shopping day of the year. As we, as we move into the season, the very uncomfortable question we have to ask is, do we own our wealth or does it own us? Do we own our wealth or does it own us? Are we discontent with what we have? The pursuit of wealth blinds us to real need and deafens us to God's Word clearly spoken. Now, I want to point out that this is, this is a heart issue. It's not a percentage issue. I think the way that we often respond to, to something like this is like, okay, alright, I need to up the amount of my giving and that will make sure that I've covered my bases. But that's really not what Jesus is after. This is, this is not a percentage issue. It's a heart issue. It's a question of, of what I truly treasure. Of what I really deem worthy. See, in A Christmas Carol, Scrooge becomes convinced of his son, right? The ghost, uh, the three ghosts come and they show him these different scenes from Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas future and it, and it convinces Scrooge to change his ways and the first thing he does is he makes amends, he, you know, gives away money and, uh, turkey and it's great. But in the gospel, someone else comes. And makes amends for you. You see, in the gospel, there's no way to pay the debt that you've accrued. And someone else, and, and no amount of giving, tithing, etc. will get you out of that hole. In the gospel, someone else comes and makes amends for you. Jesus spends His wealth for us. Jesus is not blind to our need. Rather, He uses His extravagant need, He uses His extravagant wealth to meet our extravagant need. Jesus becomes the poor man on the street. He becomes the one who's cast out on the street so that you and me can be brought inside and enjoy the feast. As we just sang, the sum of all created things are worthless in compare, for He is our inheritance. From the only way that our view of our wealth begins to shift and begins to change is when we see that Jesus is the greatest treasure, that He alone is the wealth that we need. And once we have that, Everything else is up for His disposal. Let's pray.